And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's the little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. A great response by the Canucks on Thursday night, and that sets up a huge game, at least from a historical standpoint, in Seattle on Saturday as the Canucks wrap up their season-opening six-game road trip. Thanks for logging on to the VanCast. Farhan Lalji and Thomas Drance. Drancer, you were there. You heard uh, Travis Green's anger following the Buffalo loss. You saw his team's response two nights later. What's your take on last night's game, my friend? Was it a great response? Was it? Like, was it really? Response. It was a win. It was fine. I mean, there were some there were some players that responded. Like, Tanner Pearson responded. I thought Bo Horvat responded. But I don't know that it was, you know, player for player. <laughs> they came out like gorillas. Like, I don't know that it was anything like that. And they got the win. They got the win over a Chicago team that was as disorganized as any I've seen in a long, long time. Like, really, that is a bad poorly run team and it couldn't happen to a nicer franchise, but man, they're in trouble and they got booed off the ice last night. So, you know what? It, it mattered for narrative purposes. That win mattered a lot. Like I think it mattered to stabilize things before the Canucks host their first home game in 600 days. Like I think there was a chance if they'd lost last night, if they lost then to the expansion team, I think there was a chance that they'd have come home four-game losing streak, and it might have been a complicated reception at what should be a celebratory game for the franchise. I think the win last night waylaid that possibility, which is why it was a big one, like mini crisis averted. But I don't know that I look at their performance and think, boy, oh boy, like what a response. Like I really didn't think it was that great a performance from for the Canucks. I thought they basically strung six minutes of like really competent hockey together in the second period. And that was enough. The Blackhawks just didn't have enough to resist. And the game was put away then. 
Before we dive deeper into that one, we do want to let everybody know that uh, it's going to be a fun show all the way through because Ryan Clark will join us in the second half of the show. Ryan, your colleague with The Athletic in Seattle covering the Kraken, and he's been on their road trip. And of course, we we know that that game Saturday is going to be a big deal for the, for the Kraken, for the city, for everyone associated with that because it's been a few years in the making here and promises to be a fantastic atmosphere. We are looking forward to talking to Ryan about that. Both of us are going to be down there for that game. But as far as last night is concerned in Chicago, when you look at that game, I mean, you know, they scored the goal, Jason Dickinson to open the game. And then after that, there was about a 10-minute stretch in that period, in the first period, where I thought, this team is awful. Like, they, they scored the goal and they, they weren't doing anything at that point. They were giving up some scoring chances. They weren't skating. And I thought, that's the response, like one goal. But as you mentioned, they, they were able to reel it back in and they had a stretch there in the second period where they were able to get it done. Yeah, and I mean, the the game-winning goal, like that net front battle between Lankinen and Pearson, and then Pearson sandwiched between Seth Jones and Lankinen, and then Pearson just putting his butt into Calvin DeHaan, completely putting him in the hip pocket, and a really deft deflection off that Quinn Hughes point shot. He walked the line beautifully, as Quinn Hughes is liable to do, right? Uh, you know, that was that was the, what they needed to do. Like, that was paying the price. That was the moment that they needed, but... There just weren't a lot of Tanner Pearsons last night, in my opinion. Like, in my opinion, I you know, that was like a symbolic or an emblematic moment. Like, that's what they need to do. But it was isolated. It was a few isolated moments of that as opposed to the team as a whole sustaining it. And so, you know, whatever. They won. It matters. Like, it really, that was a big win for this early in the season. Narratively speaking, a really important one for the team to get. Now they can go into Seattle, you know, you can pin your hopes on, oh, seven points in six games. That's a good road trip, right? Like, even if it's five points in seven games, it's not a disaster. You know, no matter what, disaster averted, crisis averted. And so full full points to that. But, you know, this team's not going yet. They're really not. And, you know, I can't escape the sense that that's because in part, you know, like, like for all the noise around this team, for all the funky vibes, for the Hamannick departure, for the you know, departure, the absence, the Brandon Sutter injury, the Tyler Mott injury, the, you know, way that training camp looked, the inability to gather momentum, Brock Besser getting hurt. Like the thing that stands out to me is most impacting this team right now is the fact that Quinn Hughes and Elias Pettersson missed training camp, right? And Quinn Hughes gets hurt, lower body injury, um, surely related to, to missing camp and the ice time that he logged, right? Like any player that logs a ton of ice time, whether it's a knock-in game or a soft tissue injury, like it's still a player at higher risk because they missed camp and play a ton of minutes, right? Uh, and then Elias Pettersson just not quite on his like precision calibration in terms of, you know, those willful, ruthless skill plays. Uh, you know, that to me, like wh- why is the team not firing on all cylinders yet? Why does the team look a little turgid to open the season? It's like Pedersen's not quite going yet. He's still shaking off the rust after eight minutes, but eight, eight months, excuse me, between competitive games. And Quinn Hughes missed a game and boy, this team doesn't have any redundancy in place for him. Like they cannot spare Quinn Hughes. And there you go. Like there you have it. That, that sort of shapes the first five games of the season so far. If this team's going to get back on track, it's going to be because Pedersen gets back up to his usual standards, his usual form, and because Quinn Hughes stays healthy here. Yeah, let's dive into that a little bit deeper in Quinn Hughes. I mean, you talk about what this team looked like in the one game without Quinn Hughes and what they looked like last night. And, and again, they didn't set the world on fire last night, but they were a train wreck the night before in their own end. 
And when you have Quinn Hughes, not only do you have the puck more, not only can you exit the zone cleaner, but it puts everybody else in a much more comfortable slot as opposed to what it looked like against Buffalo. Are you surprised it was that stark? We know what the player can offer, but are you surprised it was that stark in terms of difference on the back end? I am. Honestly, I am. Like, that was mind-blowing. I, I, You know, it was a totally different team. They were just completely stuck in their own end. And yeah, I mean, I was surprised. It, it, one player should not have that big an impact on an overall team game in this sport. You know, like that, that was like an NBA team missing LeBron or something, you know, like that was wild. And, you know, I, I do think even last night, like one thing about Hughes is that he was scintillating. I'm watching this game and I'm like F shift after shift, he's controlling everything. And then I go look at the underlying numbers and he's underwater across the board. And, you know, I mean... I liked some of what we saw from Tucker Pullman late in the game. I liked that block shot late uh, with the Blackhawks net empty. Uh, you know, I've liked the defensive game. I've liked the mobility. Uh, overall, I think he's performed above my expectations coming in. But I do think when you put a player like that who's a little bit limited in terms of their puck skills on Hughes's right side and staple him there, like there's a ton of pucks that bounce over his stick on keep-ins, right? Or, or you know, passes off the rush that are missed or open guys in the slot that he doesn't find while pinching down or just like those li- that little accumulation of subtle mistakes. And I don't know if fans are missing it or if it doesn't translate on TV, but for me, you know, there's something that a purely defensive piece takes off the table a little bit. Chris Tanev throughout his career took a little bit off the table offensively for players that he played with, but Tanev at least is a pinpoint passer, right? Like he can make a hundred point, a hundred foot pass. He can make a pass through coverage. You know, I don't know that Tucker Pullman can, and that's something that I'm sort of eyeing with some early season concern here as we go, because I do think that sort of limits Hughes's overall impact, even if individually he's brilliant the way that he was on Thursday night in Chicago. Meanwhile, the other player you mentioned, obviously, Elias Pettersson, and a player that rightfully is going to get some adjustment time, some leeway given the eight months he's had uh, away from competitive hockey. But that line as a whole, the lotto line, which got put back together yesterday, Brock Besser, again, a player that also missed some time, is just getting back in. And JT Miller, who spent most of his time in training camp in the early part of the season playing center, collectively, I expected them to have some timing issues offensively, but they weren't great defensively either. And that comes on the heels where a lot of those players weren't very good defensively. So is that part of it, which is typically a bit more controllable, more troubling to you? Yeah, I'm not troubled yet by anything around Elias Pettersson just because, you know. But the whole line. Yeah, no, I know. The whole line, you know, one thing that at least began to work in their game as, as yesterday's contest went along. Like, you're, you're right. The defensive play wasn't great. The, the heavy shifts aren't there. The precision passing, the high danger scoring chances, like those are not developing the way that we're used to seeing them developing when that trio's together. But at least one part of their game began to fire as the game went along, and that was their forecheck, their ability to be tough to break out against. When that line's at their best, they're turning those opportunities into like quick three passes goal, right? They're like a quick strike line that just capitalizes off of opponents' mistakes. Um, You know, the capitalization wasn't there last night. The precision wasn't there. The skill wasn't necessarily playing up to its usual level, but at least they were tough to break out against again. And I'll take that as a sign of progress for now, Uh, you know, especially because it seems like Patterson and Brock Besser to a lesser extent are still just kind of shaking off some rust here. 
uh, you know, I do think I do think they'll require a little bit of time and, and I'm going to grade them on a curve accordingly. I, I at least saw some signs of progress, some signs of life last night. And so, you know, uh, while it wasn't their best game by any means, while they got outshot almost two to one, um, you know, in, in an uncharacteristic way for that line, typically speaking, I think it's understandable. And at least I saw parts of their game begin to work. And the parts of their game that began to work are sort of like the workmanlike parts of their game. So I can't really criticize too hard because more than anything, what mattered to me last night in terms of evaluating this team was just seeing them respond effort-wise after the Buffalo loss, after the practice Wednesday when Green challenged them. And I thought that line did that at least. Meanwhile, as a result of JT Miller moving back to that line, you've got Jason Dickinson coming up a rung and being the third line center, which is what they acquired him for. And it created a line with Nils Hoaglander and um, Matthew Highmore, which I thought was as effective as any they iced last night. Niels Hoaglander is probably this team's best forward so far this season, right? Like in terms of seizing, like like grabbing a line by the scruff of their neck and dragging them 150 feet down the ice, like he's the guy doing that on a consistent basis. Um, you know, I, I think he's been far and away Vancouver's best forward. The underlying numbers back it up. You know, he's been on the ice for three goals, four, zero against, five on five. Like, he leads the team by shot differential, by expected goal differential. Like, every single underlying metric is singing Niels Hoaglander's praises right now, right? Like, he's been exceptional. And I thought that goal, the Dickinson goal, was, like, completely him. Like, I know that Matthew Highmore ends up with the primary assist, but, you know, it was Hoaglander's work through transition. He played give and go with, like, three different players. He won a battle along the wall. He took Highmore's defender... Highmore, uh, Dickinson's defender went to cover Highmore. Highmore makes a simple play to the slot. Dickinson capitalizes. It was Hoaglander driving. And, you know, it's really impressive to see what this kid's been able to do through the first five games. Like, he's leveled up. He's leveled up. He is a better player. He is one of a very short list of guys on this team right now that you can drop down, especially because Besser's shaking off the rust. Pedersen's shaking off the rust, right? Like, Garland's still finding his feet. But Hoaglander's a guy you can drop on any line and that line immediately gets better. Um, you know, JT Miller has been that guy in the past for the Canucks. But right now, I don't know that they have another guy who's playing at a level where that's true, except for Hoaglander. Hoaglander's definitely at that level. It's wildly impressive. And and look, Dickinson had a really brutal game. So did Highmore in Buffalo. But Dickinson in particular. I thought Dickinson was the worst individual Canuck in a terrible uh, team effort in Buffalo. Uh, but on the whole, on the whole, like for me, he's had four really good games. I've liked a lot of what we've seen from him defensively. Uh, teams are just not generating a ton against the Canucks when he's on the ice. Uh, I like that a lot. I like all of that a lot. It's a huge upgrade over what they've had in terms of bottom six centermen in the past. And that was a nice shot. Nice to see him get rewarded. Uh, particularly after a, a really rough game for him on Tuesday in Buffalo. Get, circling back to Hoaglander, who, and I agree with you, I think he's been the most consistent, the most noticeable, the most exciting and interesting of the Canuck forwards, really of, of any Canuck, potentially maybe minus Quinn Hughes and what he did last night. Yeah, and Demko. But Demko's been I want to ask you about him compared to Pod Colson, who is scratched. And, and you've been advocating, not necessarily that he gets scratched, but that we just collectively temper expectations and don't be surprised if he does get scratched. Take me through the difference between Pod Colson this year and Hoaglander last year. Yes, I know they're completely different players stylistically uh, and what the expectations and ceilings are for those players. But, you know, the rope that Hoaglander was given, and I think we all understand that this team didn't have nearly the depth up front a year yeah. ago, 
that they did this year. I mean, Hoaglander was the Tyler Toffoli replacement, as Jim Benning told us at one point during the season, right? So I, I know that that kind of gave him a little more run, but in terms of readiness, what do you see as Hoaglander a year ago versus Pod Colson this year? Yeah, I mean, well, the biggest advantage that Hoaglander had going into his rookie season was that everyone else was starting from a, like, standing start, whereas Hoaglander had played all fall, like, right? Like, Hoaglander had played SHL hockey. So he came in and was in midseason form when everyone else in the NHL was shaking off the cobwebs from like an extended pandemic offseason. Right. And so, you know, that gave him an edge off the hop and he got off to a really strong start in a really premium role. And then his game kind of struggled. Right. Like the thing about Hoaglander is Hoaglander would have been in and out of the lineup, I think, on a deeper team like that had options um, you know, in a normal season, like he would have been not, not maybe in the first 15 to 20 games, but there would, would have been stretches in that middle point when his defensive play sagged that he probably would have come out of the lineup in his rookie year. It's just Vancouver had no depth. They had no options. They were God awful. And now Pod Colson's coming into a team where Hoaglander's not even playing in the top six right now, right? Like Hoaglander didn't even play in the top six yesterday. And, you know, he doesn't have the same edge in terms of, you know, adjusting, like adjusting, having having played three months when everyone else is just starting their season. And also, I do think that Pod Colson's learning curve's a little bit steeper. Like, Pod Colson was more physically ready for this league than Hoaglander was. But for whatever reason, and I think it's because Hoaglander's game is so focused on playing that short, small area game, right? On, on winning, like, board battles and being strong along the wall. Like, all of Hoaglander's skill set sort of translated a little bit more neatly in terms of helping a team in transition, uh, making smart plays from off the wall. Like some of those areas that Pod Colson has struggled in a little bit, uh, Hoaglander was already really advanced at just because that's how he plays the game. And, you know, I think Pod Colson's got some, got some areas where he's going to have to figure it out. Now, look, you know, he was scratched on Thursday and I don't like to see that, right? Like I think, Pod Colson should play every night, 9 to 11 minutes a game, no matter how well or how poorly he's playing. And he should be playing like that because by February, in my opinion, if he's used right and brought along the right way, and if his confidence is kept high, he's going to be one of this team's nine best players. Like they're going to need him down the stretch. Uh, But, you know, if he's scratched once on a six game road trip to begin the season and, you know, looking through his performance, like the goal was great. The Buffalo game, he had some moments, but by every underlying metric, he's Vancouver's like la- most lagging forward, right? Like, you know, he's got the highest goals against or the lowest goals for percentage. He's got the lowest Corsi for like go, go across the list. He's he's if he's not 12th ranked 12th, he's ranked 11th, right? Like, you know, I can't get too worked up about him being scratched once in that role if that persists, right? If he's scratched repeatedly, uh, if he's scratched both Saturday and Tuesday, uh, then it becomes a very different conversation, right? Then it's like, well, why are you letting, you know, Danila Klimovich star in the American League 20 minutes a night and having this guy gather mothballs on the bench or in the press box? Like that's where they're going to face some really tough decisions here. Uh, Green reiterating post game on Thursday that he likes them, but you know, this is going to happen and he's still learning and they need to bring him along slowly and that's fine, but bring him along slowly with a plan. You know, I want to see a plan here and I want to see it 
be executed with some discipline and, you know, in, in obvious evidence. Um, so far, I'm not at the point where I'm criticizing that, where I'm saying that's not the case. But yeah, I mean, if he's going to be scratched regularly, then we're going to get to that point. And we're going to get to that point like mid next week, not with a ton of time, um, you know, or, or patience on our end before concluding like this doesn't make sense. Yeah. And so much of that is going to be dependent on Alex Chason and his effectiveness on PP1 if he stays there, because as you pointed out, when you take out the power play forwards and you take out the penalty kill forwards, that doesn't leave you much left in terms of your options if you want to keep those penalty kill forwards intact. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And let's talk a bit about special teams, Drancer, as we get back to that. And, you know, we talked about the power play earlier, but from a penalty kill standpoint, it hasn't been good. They've given up four goals and really six, if you think about it, because there were two that went in just after penalty kills expired. And, you know, it was in the defensive zone and the, the pressure was a result of the power play. It hasn't looked good yet. And when you consider the the guys that they've got there, uh, as far as the forwards are concerned, they're still giving up a lot of cross-seam passes. You know, they've got a passive system, so that should get taken away. What is going on with the penalty kill right now? It's, I mean, Jason Dickinson on Wednesday suggested that part of it was familiarity, right? That part of it was right now you're trying to do too much because you don't know where the other guy is going to be and, you know, the four penalty-killing forwards most frequently used didn't play together last season. Um, you know, maybe, maybe. I, I, I could sort of see it on the Debrinket goal, right, where, like, Dickinson sort of has a chance to pressure, kind of seems a little indecisive, doesn't quite get the puck out, and boom, boom, crossing passes. Now, you know, the fact that those crossing passes are being made despite a narrow sort of system where the only thing aggressive about the Canucks PP is the way that the defender fronts the flank shooter, right? Um, you know, we saw Tyler Myers block a shot and leave the ice in a heap in just that scenario. Like short of that, the Canucks do play a pretty passive system designed to prevent that type of super dangerous cross crease movement, right? Or cro- yeah, cross seam movement. And yet that is where they're being picked apart. So that's a bad sign, like a very bad sign. Um, Tyler Mott will help. Tyler Mott might help a lot. Uh, familiarity might help, but man, they're giving up so many shots right now. Like they're just, forget the goals. The, just the underlying profile of that PK is really worrying. And for all of that, I do think after a brutal looking first goal, right? The one PK goal that they gave up yesterday was no bueno. The rest of the way, I did think the PK looked better. Like they even had shifts where they kind of denied entry and um, you know, played some in the Chicago zone and things were looking a little better for the PK as yesterday's game went along. But, you know, that's Chicago. Like you got to do it against other teams, like really good teams. Um, the Kraken will be a good test. Like that power play hasn't been great. The underlying profile is not great, but they're well coached. They know what they're doing. And and that's going to be a big test for me. But yeah, Vancouver's power penalty kill for me is the most worrying part of this team overall. Like, you know, everything else um, is sort of what I expected. They're probably giving up for, uh, more 
quality looks and generating fewer quality looks than I expected. But in terms of the flow of play, five on five, they've been middle of the road. Um, you know, the power play is going to be fine. I'm not worried about that. The underlying profile is fine. The penalty kill, underlying profile is a disaster. Like even worse than their actual results. So something's got to give there. I'm not sure what ex- what it is exactly. Um, we'll give them some more time to iron it out. But that to me, like that to me is developing into, you know, more than an Achilles heel, like <laughs> something that could really waylay this Canucks season. Yeah. And we expected some challenges there just because of the right and left side of their, of their blue line. Right. And just do they have enough left side defenders to functionally play there? But it, it really seems that what's happened up front with the forwards might've been the bigger challenge at this point. Goaltender's always got to be your best penalty killer. I'm not blaming Thatcher Demko for goals, but just what's your thoughts on his play overall through four games? I think he's been really good. But honestly, I think he's been solid. The, uh, fact of the matter is, is that the Canucks have a 930 plus save percentage at five on five. You know, that's sort of the area where you expect a goaltender to have the most control over their, you know, overall sort of um, where overall sort of play. Like that's where you expect it to matter the most um, in terms of, you know, when you give up a power play goal against. Sometimes it's to brink it, you know, following some really dangerous cross ice movement on and on. Um, you know, I think basically Thatcher Demko has given the Canucks everything they could possibly want. Like, what's he at? 922 save percentage, right? That's really good. Um, he's, you know, at he's like saved a, a not not a full goal, but like a half goal above average uh, based on the underlying numbers. This team's giving up a lot of really high quality chances. Uh, he's not giving up the amount of goals that he should be necessarily. Like he's stopped everything he's needed to stop for me. There hasn't certainly been either a goal that he gives up where it's like um, a deflator. You know what I mean? Where everyone's like, Ooh, I mean, maybe that fourth Buffalo goal, maybe, but you know, I I mean, that wasn't on him either. That was a really high quality look. Um, So yeah, I mean, I, I think Demko has been full value for this team. I think he's been one of their best players. I think they're going to need that to continue couple of other things before we go. Kyle Burroughs, with a fight, our boy Nils Hoaglander took a couple of hits and he didn't like it. It wasn't necessarily a huge fight, only a second of his career, but did it make a statement? Uh, yeah, I think so. I thought it was exactly what the team needed in that moment. Uh, now, Riley Stillman, I know really well, right? Worked with him in Florida. Best kid, like my favorite kid ever. And what yeah. was what was funny about it is, you know, Riley Stillman is Corey Stillman's kid, right? So this is a guy who's been around the game forever. Throws those two hits. Uh, you know, one of them was probably a charge on Nils Hoaglander. And Burroughs comes and challenges him. And Burroughs doesn't really even wait. He just kind of starts. And Riley Stillman kind of waits. And the refs kind of look at him. And then finally, you know, he he throws his gloves down and, and engages. If he'd waited a little, like, if Riley Stillman wasn't such a good dude, that might have been an instigator. <laughs> but but Burroughs picked the fight against the right guy, like the right stand-up guy with hockey bloodlines who was like, this is my chance to answer for something stupid I did. Like, let's go. And uh, and so, you know, anyway, I, I think that was the, a good moment for Burroughs. He's had a lot of good moments, right? Like, he really shouldn't leave the lineup at this point, I don't think, uh, at least until there's other right D options. He's clearly something they need in terms of his transition play, in terms of his intelligence, in terms of the chemistry with Rathbone, and, you know, in terms of his overall team-mindedness. And I think that showed in the fight that he had with Stillman. Uh, Nice moment for the depth defender. Yeah, I've liked his play so far when he's been in the lineup. I think he's 
better than Luke Shen on that right side. Uh, you know, I think he's been steady. I think he makes a good first pass. I think there's been a lot of good there. And you mentioned Jack Rathbone. I got to be honest, Rancher, I've been really impressed with his play. I think he's been so confident, dynamic, creative, you know, in the offensive end. I think he, this guy's going to earn more ice time and is going to be a pretty dynamic player for this team this year. Uh, he's been great. He's been great. Um, I think he might have come out of the lineup, right? Like if uh, if Hughes hadn't if Hughes had been able to go in Buffalo, I think he might have come out of the lineup so that Hunt and Shen could have got a game. And then he was their best defender against Buffalo, played top four minutes, and then he played well again on Thursday. And I think he's going to quickly get to the point where he's a must-have. I mean, he's already there for me. Uh, But yeah, Jack Rathbone's really good. And he's only going to get better here as he figures out the league. I thought he had some really good defensive moments against Chicago, too. Um, Teams just aren't generating much against him. And granted, they're mostly playing bottom six competition. They are playing protected minutes, but it doesn't change the fact that, you know, Full value. He's been really, really effective. A, a good part of this team. And, you know, if you have a third pair that you don't worry about, or or even better, that controls the shot clock pretty regularly against bottom six competition, like, that helps. That can help paper over some other issues higher in the lineup. And, you know, that's a, that's a good weapon that this Canucks team might need to use uh, or avail themselves of pretty significantly as this season goes along. Last thing. Connor Garland. He's had a point in every game this season. And, uh, you know, I know that Brock Besser chuckled a little bit about the effort he put into that empty net goal that he basically walked into the empty net. But, so funny. Uh, just what, what's, just your take on, what's your take on pumping. his play so far? Oh, he's a great character, right? Like the way that his arms were pumping was so good. Was so good. Um, I, you know, there was a sense for me earlier on in the season that he was thinking too much, right? And I think that sense has quickly faded as he's had got his reps in, as he's played more. I think he's played well. And, you know, I, I don't know that that line has clicked off the hop, him with Horvat and Pearson, but I thought they had a really good game against Chicago. That was probably their best game yet. And we'll see if that sort of continues. I, I think it's pretty clear at this point that Travis Green's intent on giving them run, hopefully it's like 10 games of run, um, because I do think that's probably what Garland needs is to really get familiar with playing with Bo Horvat. But you can see those moments like, right before the Tanner Pearson goal where he's doing that weird cycle game thing he does down low and winning some battles along the wall and just challenging. A cycle game by himself. Yeah, it is a cycle game by himself. It's it's him in a spin cycle. And, but, but, you know, it's really interesting, and he does create a lot of movement off of it, but you can understand why Pearson and Horvat are, like, still figuring out how to complement that. You know what I'm saying? Like, you can – Yeah, so, no question. It's so weird. Like, it's so different, and it's clearly effective, and he clearly finds seams and – manages to work the puck into higher danger areas and, you know, does some interesting things with it. But you can understand why you'd be like, I've never seen this before. What do I do? Where do I go? You know, like, I I honestly feel like they're still figuring out how to get to soft areas that he can find them as a playmaker and and likewise figure out where he wants to be and where he wants the puck to generate scoring chances. Like, I really think it's a work in progress on the most basic level, on the most basic, like, familiarity with where you want the puck and where you're going to be in this situation – I just think they're working through that, and I think it's going to take some time. But, you know, there there, there are flashes where the returns look scintillating. Well, and remember that during the preseason, Garland himself wasn't happy with his own plays, that he wasn't playing right. well. And we were talking about the fact that 
he just wasn't getting any kind of run with any one center, that it was just a, a constant revolving door for him during training camp. And he himself said, well, maybe if I'd played better with one, you know, pretty accountable guy, maybe if I'd played better with one, I would have got more time with that player. But we all kind of forecast that he ultimately would have been playing with Bo Horvat. It might have helped the club to have given him more time in the preseason yeah. with Horvat. But nonetheless, I think he's figuring it out and slowly but surely they'll figure him out. Yeah, fair enough. I, you know, I don't disagree with you. The uh, the only sort of other qualifier I'd add is that because they had so many injuries, right? They were sort of playing guys all over the place. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I just think they're trying to figure it out with him. And I think they've made some progress on that. I, I certainly think Chicago, the Chicago game, the Detroit game, those were two examples where it started to work in my mind's eye, um, but still work to be done. And, and, you know, it makes sense to me when I see Garland play that it would be a bit of an adjustment for them, especially, right? They're used to playing with like, Louis Erickson, or like, you know, Jake Vertanen, or, or even Niels Hoaglander, who's so accommodating in the way that he plays that area game. You know, what Garland's trying to do shift after shift is a little bit different, and I just think it's taking them some time. And with that, it takes us to Saturday. The Canucks in Seattle to take on the Kraken, and the first guest that I'm able to co-host with you to have on our <laughs> show with Ryan Clark from The Athletic. He's going to join us to talk about the vibe down in Seattle. Uh, before we go, though, let's uh, take a quick break for our sponsor. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. And we are delighted to be joined by Seattle's own Ryan Clark from The Athletic in Seattle. And look, this is my first time co-hosting a guest on our VanCast since we began this whole thing in September with a new co-host. And now we've got the ultimate guest as the Vancouver Canucks get set to head down to Seattle and take on the Kraken in their first game in their brand new $1.15 billion climate pledge. Arena Ryan, thanks so much for being on with us. Hey, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Well, let's talk about the excitement level in the Emerald City for this game. I, you know, I, I know a lot of people down there in the Seattle media, and certainly I was down there covering it. Uh, you know, when when the team got announced and when they had their season ticket drive, which lasted about twenty four minutes before they wound up selling out all their season tickets and had a huge waiting list to go on top of that. Just what is the vibe in Seattle right now on uh, the eve of this game? There's definitely a lot of excitement, just because for people here, they've seen this team on television, but they've not really seen them here in Seattle, Seattle. I mean, yes, there was the game in Kent, which is a suburb of Seattle, when they had an exhibition against the Calgary Flames, but all of their games have been away from home. I mean, you think about their exhibition slate, it was in Spokane, Everett, and Kent. And then you think about this five-game road trip where it was Las Vegas, Nashville, Columbus, Philadelphia, and then Newark, New Jersey. And so now you're getting a chance to see this team but when you think about where it comes in terms of the sports calendar here, it's sort of at an interesting point because right now the Seahawks are not having the sort of season people are pleased with. 
The University of Washington football is going through its troubles. Washington State football is the same thing. Uh, the Mariner season, of course, ended. And so if you're looking at it from that perspective, the Kraken the, the are making their home debut at a really interesting time, and it's a time for them to really not only put a foot in the landscape, but really make some headway in the landscape in terms of being a winter sports commodity that the city hasn't seen in quite some time, at least on a professional sports level. Ryan, what about the event itself? Now, look, I, I know that there are probably going to be some unfair comparisons on the ice as far as Seattle and Vegas is concerned. And, you know, the circumstances around that one were a little bit different just in terms of teams being wise to what Vegas did and wanting to make sure that Seattle wasn't able to put together the same team the same way. But from a production and entertainment standpoint, you know, and, and I know that when you, you talk about this arena, the building itself, right, this isn't the first event because they have had a couple of concerts there on Tuesday and then again here on Friday. Um, but the building, they've got two suspended scoreboards. You've got ice level suites. There's a virtual waterfall. Uh, just so much going on there. I mean, in terms of the carbon footprint of the building itself, it's net zero. The ice itself comes from collected rainwater. There's a lot of uniqueness around the building. But in terms of the production, comparing that to what Vegas might offer, just to how much uniqueness is going to be there around the presentation for this game on Saturday? It's interesting you mentioned Vegas because Johnny Greco, who was one of the people in Vegas that sort of helped lay the foundation for their in-game production and entertainment, is doing the same thing here. It's him, Lamont Buford, who was with the Coyotes, and Aaron Sakara, who she's worked with different clubs in the NHL. I believe Vegas was one of them. Uh, definitely San Jose, Detroit, I want to say, maybe Arizona. But the thing is this, between the three of them, they are so extremely aware of all the things that could, could come about. And it goes back to something Johnny Lamont pointed out in a conversation we had with him for a story, which was they're like, you know, look, people look at all these different moving parts about the first night. But the thing they have to realize is the building itself is a character within the story. For a lot of people, they haven't walked into this place since it was Key Arena. And it was a different environment than for so many reasons, but they're going to come under this roof, a roof that they've known and they've seen for much of their lives and everything underneath it is going to be different. And so when you think about what that could mean for on ice with in-game and pre-game, it's kind of been interesting to see what they've done in the preseason in terms of figuring out what that looks like, whether it's playing certain songs, certain things they've done on the ice, but even they've admitted there's only so much they could do because the whole thing about the Kraken's approach has been this, They've really tried to t capitalize and tap in on mystique and mystery, the whole release the deep. Again, you think about it, no one really knows what the Kraken looks like. Everybody has an idea, but no one knows what their version of the Kraken looks like. And so they're trying to hold on to that mystique and what they plan on doing in-game is, is part of that equation. Ryan, with the vibe in the city, and I know you've been on the road and you wrote a great piece about what was a pretty chaotic first road trip for the Kraken with the vibe in the city, what do you get a sense of is the excitement level going into this, you know, pretty momentous NHL occasion? Well, Harmon, I want to say you do a good job. The other writer you guys have, not so much. I'm joking. <laughs> For people listening to this, they're going to be like, man, Ryan and Thomas must like hate each other. It's like, no, we've actually liked each other a lot, known each other for a while. Thomas is one of my favorite people. But, uh, but no, in terms of the excitement, that first game, even though it was in Vegas, it was just looking at your feed because, of course, in a place like Vancouver, every game is an event. I mean, it's Vancouver. But for a place like Seattle, mm -hmm. you are seeing people who don't normally comment about hockey comment about hockey in the Kraken. Right. And they're talking about 
hey, the pregame where you're seeing the Golden Knight take on a virtual Kraken. They're talking about, okay, falling behind 3 nothing to tie it at 3 to lose 4-3 and just the excitement they felt about what's going on. It, 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 it's things like that, but then in terms of other forms of that excitement and interest, it's these things that you look at it over time and go, it's been building. And so an example is when we moved back to Seattle from Denver, right away you were seeing people wearing hats, hoodies, T-shirts. You're seeing decals on cars, bumper stickers. There was even something that my wife and I were driving back from dinner, and she's the one who saw it because I was driving and making sure we weren't you know, going to do anything stupid in a car. But she's like, oh, hey, there was literally an 18-wheeler next to us that just turned off. That said, official partner, the Seattle Kraken and Ron Francis's face was on the side of the trailer. And it's like, oh, we're putting Ron Francis's face on this side of an 18-wheeler. Like, <laughs> welcome to Seattle. And so <laughs> there is this interest and there is this buzz. And another example of that, too, uh, would be this. So when we moved back, we were checking in our hotel before uh, our, our stuff arrived in the move. And the, the young woman helping us at the front desk. She was like, oh, what brings you back? And told her, oh, work. And she said, what do you do? And I explained. And she was just like, my friends and I have been on a waiting list to try to get tickets. Really? It just feels like it's an impossible thing to get. And like, this was actually uh, last November. So it's almost been a year. So it's been building. But the other thing that makes it so unique is you think about the experience the Golden Knights had versus the Kraken. Remember in Vegas, they had the big event at, to- at, at Toshiba Plaza in front of T-Mobile Arena where the entire city, or at least 4,000 people, could be there to witness it in person. Everything the Kraken have done, except for the expansion draft, has always been remote because of the pandemic. And so that's the other added component to this, too, is it's like it's the normal excitement around an expansion team in a season and in a home opener. But at the same time, it's also something extra because of the pandemic. You know immediately that it's a new hockey market versus like a fatalistic hockey market like Vancouver because no one would ever put the GM in Vancouver on the side of an 18-wheeler. The symbolism would be far too rich <laughs> were there to be anything that went wrong for the truck. Um, <laughs> Ryan, with the Kraken's performance on the ice so far, right? One in three, right? What has gone right? What has gone wrong through the first small handful of games for this expansion club? Sure. Well, let's look at the bulk of their games. The things that have gone right is they've been in four of those five. Because uh, you look at Jersey, yes, it was an empty netter, but prior to that, it was a one-goal game. So they've remained close. And, and the things that have gone well for them in, this, in, in, in some instances, number one being they have been able to get production from beyond the top line, which that's been one of the big questions for them is who is going to be able to score. Brandon Tanneth has had goals. Morgan Geeky has had goals. Ryan Donato's had goals. At one point in time, they were on a line together. And of the eight goals the team had scored by that point, five of them belonged to those three. Another thing that they have been able to, to do well is when you look at their power play, they've been able to find the openings that they need. I mean, yes, converting chances is, is another thing, but they've been able to move the puck and they've been done, being able to do it fluidly. And then when it's worked for them, like their style of this aggressive forechecking, it has allowed them to play this annoying style that other teams, you know, they're going to be forced into making mistakes. But in terms of the things that have not gone well for them, it's kind of difficult to pick your, figure out which one would be number one, because like you think about the game against Philadelphia, 
when everything fell apart for them defensively and, and how much of that is, as, as players and Jay Paxwell talked about, like for them, it's not an excuse, but when you've only had so many practices and you're a brand new team and you're still figuring out the system, is that one of those things where a game like that, it just shows, you know, why practice time is important. Uh, every team goes through injuries and whatnot, but when you think about the Kraken, like their team that, and that game, we're already down Marcus Johansson, which is one player, down Callie Yarncruck, who is another, which uh, Yarncruck, of course, is coming off of COVID protocol. And then Colin Blackwell skated Thursday, but they were missing him as well. And so that might just sound like three players, but just three individuals alone is an entire line. And that changes the complexion of, of your team. It gives you depth, so many different things. But then another thing, too, would just be it's about finding consistency because when you think about their, their performances, even in those one-goal losses, you think about Vegas, they fell behind 3 nothing, but then had to come back. Nashville, they were able to build a lead, but it was a third period where Nashville was just so intense with its pressure. The Kraken, the only shot on goal they had was an empty netter by Brandon Tanev. <laughs> that was the insurance goal um, that, that, that allowed them to get that first win. Columbus was one where they gave up a goal in that third period. They lose in overtime. And so, yes, if they could convert chances in that game, it makes a difference. And then with the game against the New Jersey Devils, once again, falling behind, believe it was 2 nothing by the end of the first, and it almost was 3, if not for a disallowed goal. Like, it's another example of how a slow start almost proved problematic. Ryan, you mentioned earlier about uh, the annoying style of play this team likes to play, and one guy who plays that pretty well is Yanni Gordon. Showed a lot of that in Tampa. He got him back in that last game against Jersey well ahead of schedule after he had the torn labrum in his shoulder. And then you've also got Jared McCann, former Canuck, who is a you know top six center for this team right now. And just tell me about those two and eventually who kind of slots into that number one spot. I know Gord was able to play with Schwartz and Eberle on that top line in the last game, but just the play of those two guys. Sure. So let's start off with Yanni Yord. He's another one of those players, as we just talked about in the last question, that, again, he was missing. But, of course, he came back. It's a little bit of one of those sort of technicalities. But again, now that he is back in the lineup, he does really change the complexion of this team in the sense of you have a top line center, you have someone that you can run on power play one um, as well. And not only that, but again, he gives you someone like Yusef Rahan who plays that aggressive style that knows where to be in those settings. If you have him as your F1, your F2, your F3, he knows where to be, but also he's someone who can facilitate. And when you looked at how the Eberle and Schwartz line played with him, that, that night against the New Jersey Devils. Like, yes, Gordon only had one shot on goal, but it's the way he was able to facilitate, especially from the corners where he's able to win a puck battle or he gets a loose puck, and the next thing you know, it's a quick flick of the wrist, and it turns into a shot attempt from a high-danger area. And so he's able to provide that. But another telltale sign about what he was able to do is everyone kept thinking, okay, with the shoulder, not that they were going to rush him into anything because the Kraken have said it's been about prudence with him, but they've wanted to make sure that it wasn't too much too fast. He had the second most ice time of any four, the third most ice time of any skater. He had more than 20 faceoffs, which was more than anyone else. And he won about, I think it was at least 53, 54%, but well over 50%. So you're already seeing him establish himself even just in his first game. Whereas if you look at Jared McCann, Early on, placing him with, with Schwartz and Everly, it was a line that connected in a much more consistent fashion compared to all the other lines throughout camp. And you were seeing them 
find more cohesion throughout the, the early parts of the season. But there was a change that Hackstall made against Philadelphia where Alex Winberg went to the first line. Jared McCann became second line center. Then you think about the game against New Jersey. Jared McCann was then moved to the left wing. I believe it was third line left wing at that point. And in terms of the future, Yanni Gord is number one center. It looks like that's always, that looks like that's going to be the plan. That the thought all along was he was going to be your top line center with Jared McCann. That was always sort of the million dollar question in a sense is like, where does he fit? Because his versatility means there's options. Like, do you put him at center? Do you put him at left wing? And so the possibility is, is maybe they put him at left wing second or third line. Cause when you think about the situation at center, they really like a lot of what Alex Winberg provides at center, someone who can win face off, who has a two way ability that in a year like this, maybe he's someone who can get you 20 goals. So there's, and not only that, but he gives you six foot two down the middle. And in third line center, Morgan Geeky has really worked to establish himself and that role. He's another player. Talk about six foot three, about 192 to 195 pounds, who's really trying to work on all the things necessary to be a top nine center, especially on the offensive end where he can use his six foot three frame, to not only win puck battles, but really get at the net and try to create and, and, and finish chances. And so when you look at how McCann fits, you would think it's going to be on the left side, either on the second line or the third line at this point. Joined by Ryan Clark of The Athletic in Seattle as we preview the Canucks. Not the Canucks, it's the Kraken home opener. They just happen to be hosting the Canucks on Saturday night. Ryan, when this team got put together, when we had the expansion draft, the forward group was thought as okay, but defensively, I think a number of people around the league looked at that group of defensemen that this team was able to pick up during that process and that, you know, this might be a blue line that already on day one is in the top half among NHL blue line core. They're giving up a lot of goals through five games. Just what are the thoughts on the play of the defense? Are they as good as advertised at this point? Part of it is that you're trying to find defensive pairings that work because if you look at what Dave Haxel did all throughout preseason, he shuffled his pairings to try to find the, the things that fit well for him. Because initially, when you look at their blueprint, you would think your top four defensemen are Mark Giordano, Vince Dunn, Jimmy Alexiak, and Adam Larson. And we've seen Dunn play outside the top four. We've seen him play inside the top four. But those other three have consistently remained inside your, your top four. It's just a matter of finding what works in terms of what pairings work, a matter in terms of just how they fit within the system, how they're understanding the system. And as everybody said, like those things are going to take time. It just comes with the understanding that time right now it, it's maybe not as copious as one might think and where it's interesting is you know when you look at some of the nhl standings as of a, a couple of days ago you see some teams where they're maybe what two three four games whereas if you you look at the the kraken they're at five pretty quickly and five and eight doesn't matter if it's this time of the year middle of the season or march like that that's a lot so if you're them it's, again it's not that you're trying to make excuses for this but you're also trying to be realistic about the fact that, like, let's say you were a team like, let's say Edmonton, for example, just because, hey, they're at the top of the Pacific. They played four games at this point. Edmonton is a team that, whether it's their forwards or defense, they've had time together. They've had more than, you know, <laughs> five regular season games and six preseason <laughs> games to, to sort of figure out what they need to do. And, 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 and there's a proof and evidence in what they've done. At this point, it's just maybe about making adjustments here and there for new personnel. Whereas with the Kraken, it's about finding a way to make sure everyone can adjust. And while they've learned the system to this point and they've had time with it, 
It's one thing to, to practice it. It's one thing to do it in a semi-controlled environment, like an exhibition game where the rosters are, are mashed in the sense of here's legit NHL players, players who are somewhere on the border, and then those who they're not going to play in the NHL, but you want to get a feel for where they're at, versus right now where everyone's in the NHL and all the teams you've played have had time together, whereas if you, you're still figuring things out to the point where four hours before your first game, you don't know if Jared McCann, uh, Jamie Alexiak, <laughs> and uh, others are going to be available because of COVID-19 protocol. Ryan, you know, Vegas was lightning in a bottle, right? I mean, there were so many things that went into what they did in that first year. And, you know, among them, uh, the tragedy at the Jason Aldean concert, how that galvanized the community. Was it unfair to expect the Kraken to do anything like that miracle season uh, off the bat? Unfair is hard to say. Unrealistic. Yeah, it's just difficult to say because... In terms of how you looked at it from uniting a community, I mean, what happened with the Golden Knights after the shooting is one of those things that doesn't really happen often. And then you talk to people like our Jesse Granger, who's there, and he can tell you just about how, like, that city really rallied around that team at that time and how you saw players doing everything from getting involved in blood drives to, you know, whatever they could do. It was like, hey, whatever you need from us, let us know. We'll stop what we're doing. Whereas if this is a far, 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 far different situation, so they're not necessarily comparable in the sense of what the team was able to do for the city before the first game or the home opener. But when you look at sort of the expectations on ice, it's interesting because the thought is now an ex- excuse me, an expansion team in, in this era compared to what the rules used to be has a much better shot of making the postseason. And when you look at the models from different people, like our Dom Lachizan, I believe Dom had the Kraken as a 77% chance to make the playoffs, which if you're the old Atlanta Thrashers, Nashville Predators, San Jose Sharks, you'll take those odds all day, every day, because the rosters you were given in the old expansion draft, they weren't the strongest. But in terms of how they're being compared to Vegas, it's always going to be there. But in the sense of what they're going to be, nobody knows, because for all the reasons you could say they're going to make the playoffs, there are reasons that make you say, I don't know. And so when we did a poll of fans asking what they thought was going to happen, the two answers that received the most votes were this is either going to be a team that sneaks into the postseason via the wild card, or they're just going to miss out somewhere around that nine or 10 spot. So that seems to be the thinking about what this team could do. But again, there's so many games left that you two know better than anyone. A, a team that might have a strong start now may not make the postseason while a team that you know, has struggled out the gate. You look down in February, March, April, and they're right there in the playoff discussion. Ryan, with Seattle and Vancouver, right? I mean, there's been some sporting rivalry back in the day for, you know, like white cap sounders, right? Like some soccer-based regional rivalry. But typically speaking, in the past, when the Canucks have been good, Seattle fans have kind of supported them. And in the past, when the Seahawks have been good, Canucks fans kind of support them. The Mariners, only Farhan supports them, but whatever. With regard to the... We'll get, we'll get this guy turned around, Ryan. <laughs> Don't you worry. We'll get him fixed. Regarding, though, the Canucks. Like, in Vancouver, I think the Kraken have become like a foil. Like, a genuine foil. Like, Canucks fans want the Kraken to not succeed. I, I, think, I think, by and large. Like, they want 
the first year NHL team, they don't want them to be better off the bat than the team, the long suffering team that they root for. Do Seattle fans care at all out of the gate? It's hard to say because at this point with the Canucks for a lot of Kraken fans, it's the question of, okay, when does the rivalry start? Has it started? Will there be one? Because they haven't played a game yet. So geographically speaking, you would naturally think, hey, this is going to be it. But as we saw with Tampa Bay and Florida for so many years, they were, what, a 90-minute flight away from one another? And Thomas, you know you worked down there while, like, Yes, there was like a, a competitive nature to it. It wasn't like this fierce nastiness like you would see with other teams. And now it's getting to the point where it's a rivalry, but it took time to get there. One of the reasons, of course, being like Tampa for so long has really been the, the number one target of the league. And when you look at what the Panthers did last year and, and what they're going to do this year, the thought of it is people think the Panthers could be in for a big year. So now it, it, it's different. Whereas if you look at Kraken Canucks, it's just such a hard thing because there are people who, like we said at the beginning, we think this could be it for all the geographic reasons, for the fact it's not really existed in this most recent era in terms of this rivalry between Seattle and Vancouver. But it's also, like you said, too, where because these two cities have been so supportive of one another in, in terms of sports, it's just kind of like, how does that work? But then again, as you two know, all it takes is one hit. All it takes is one play. All it takes is someone saying one thing and the next thing you know, whatever feelings someone might have had about those teams may go out the window and and now it's a free-for-all to see uh, who sort of has supremacy. But at the same time, we just don't know. And that's been really the biggest thing about this team at this point is if there is a tagline for the Kraken after five games, it would be, we just don't know. It's only been five games. <laughs> Yeah, no, no doubt. I, I think both cities are looking for that level of rivalry, not necessarily against each other. I think they just need one for their fan bases because for us here in Vancouver, you know, whether we call Calgary the rival or Edmonton the rival, they're each other's rival. And really the way these things work is we found out with Vancouver, Chicago, it starts in the playoffs. So at some point they're going to play each other in a playoff series and then it's going to get real. Until then, it'll probably be manufactured kind of like, you know, Vancouver's love for the Blue Jays. Uh, definitely not real, but uh, listen, uh, we're, we're going to beat down Drance. Ryan, you and I, we're going to beat down Drance over the coming weeks and months and years and make him understand that uh, these two cities are connected, not necessarily that other city, a five-hour flight away from us. Hey, buddy? <laughs> uh, so here's the thing. I am like the Swiss. I remain neutral and produce wonderful watches and chocolate. No, no, that, that's not an no option on this show. I have no rooting interest in any sports in North America whatsoever, just because with what we cover, and as Thomas can tell you, as much as I've moved around, for all the time I've been like, I'm going to cover the NHL and only the NHL, life has been like, nah, homie, you're going to go cover college football. And so because of that, I, I'm just like, neutrality is the way to go. You follow teams, you follow players. So that way, if you have to go cover something you didn't see coming, you're prepared. And then another thing too is just, objectivity makes it so easy to cover a team. So I support you on your mission. Um, good <laughs> luck with that. But you know, and I know that Thomas is that meme with the guy sitting there with the coffee cup. That's like, insert statement, change my mind. Like Thomas <laughs> could be like, water is dry, change my mind. And it's like, yeah. good luck with that. Like, yeah, seriously, more power to you. <laughs> well, and for me, I can generally stay neutral with the exception of the University of Washington football team because I'm an obsessive 
Huskies fan. So I'm, I'm having a difficult year, my friend. Hopefully that changes. But thanks so much for joining us. We've got to do this again soon. Hey, you got it. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. See you Saturday, Ryan. Can't wait. <laughs> you got it. Let me know if you need anything, okay? <laughs> I will, bud. Cheers. Awesome. Take care, guys. Thanks again. Always a lot of fun to get Ryan Clark on the show, or it's going to get very fun to get him on our show, because I'm sure this won't be the last time we do it. Because look, I think this is going to become a thing soon. And, and Drancher, you're right. People don't necessarily want this team to succeed, not because of any animus, but just they don't want the expansion team to be better than their currently poorly structured team, or at least a team that was struck poorly structured a year ago. Yeah, I mean, and your friend and mine, Matt Sakaris, has poisoned the well in this market for the expansion franchises. So... You know, they, they, they don't get a lot of love in this market. And I think people really want the Kraken to do badly. They really want the Canucks to be much better. And so I think Canucks fans are going to care about Saturday Yeah, but that's Saturday just night. an extension of Sakaris, much like yours, love for the Blue Jays and dislike for all things Seattle. So that's really what it comes down to. That's got nothing to do with anything but that. No, he's, I think he's it, enraged by the fact that we like Seattle teams, no, it, uh, much like the Seahawks and the Mariners. And, you know, he just, he just wants to kind of poison the well for that reason. Uh, see, I think it's an anti-NHL thing. Uh, but the fact is... There's is a good that, reason for that then. Yeah, yeah. The fact is, is that I feel like... Canucks fans really want the Canucks to beat Seattle. And I don't know that Seattle cares yet. Like this, this is going to start as one of those like rivalries, like wild Vancouver, where it's like very much a rivalry on one side. Um, It's not going to be a full throated rivalry off the bat. Hopefully, hopefully someone steps up, seizes the mantle, does something to get the blood flowing and makes the game a little bit more, you know, edgy uh, for the benefit of both of our markets. Yeah, too bad Duncan Keith didn't wind up on Seattle, but uh, <laughs> Tyler Myers would have had something to say about that. Oh, man, so Meanwhile, good. Meanwhile, uh, Ian Mendez and Haley Salvian have the Athletic Hockey Show. They've got plenty to say on that. That is Monday at the Athletic. And uh, if you've had a chance to listen to this one, thank you so much for that. Please follow us on your favorite podcast platform, and don't forget to leave a rating and a review. Subscribe to The Athletic Audio Plus on Apple Podcasts to get all that bonus content from our entire network. Start with a 30-day free trial, then just 99 cents a month after that. And right now, get an annual subscription to The Athletic for just $3.99 a month when you visit theathletic.com slash thevancast. And of course, our show will return on Monday. But uh, Drancer, I'm looking forward to Saturday. I'm going to drive down there. We're going to get together and uh, enjoy a game together just like we do here in Vancouver. Sounds good, bud. I can't wait to see you down in the Emerald City. Should be interesting. I've, I'm guessing it's going to be an emotional game with a very energetic home crowd. I'm really excited to be in that atmosphere. Yeah, and I'm sure Vancouver doesn't want to be that team to be the note on that record, the first loss at home against Seattle. But look, both teams will have a lot to play for emotionally, and it'll be fun to be a part of a historic night down in Seattle just a couple of hours away. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you again on Monday.